the protesters versus the government and the technocratic elite, there's a very strong class dimension here. And the disdain, the scorn that they poured on these people, I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I originally come from India, where class and caste are very much part of society there. And here, behind the veneer of liberalism and equality and tolerance, one saw some of the most classist people in Canada. And you know, it was common to deride them as these people. You know, it was just awful to experience that. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Rupa Subramania. Rupa is a writer and researcher based in Canada. She's a columnist for the National Post. She's also written for the Wall Street Journal, Foreign Policy and the Globe and Mail, covering economics and public policy issues. She was previously based in India, where she wrote on violence against women and sectarian violence, and her work on those issues has been widely cited. Over the past few weeks, Rupa has written some of the most insightful coverage of the Freedom Convoy in Canada, and she's done what few other commentators did. She spoke to the protesters and tried to understand their cause. So, Rupa, your commentary and reporting on the truckers protest in Ottawa has been essential reading, especially for those of us outside of Canada who are really trying to get a handle on what that protest was about, why they did what they did, and also trying to cut through a lot of the mainstream coverage, uh, including in supposedly progressive publications, which tended to depict the truckers as fascistic and far-right and confederate crazies, and generally unpleasant, politically backward people. Now, you went there, you've spoken to many of the truckers, you've got a real sense of who these people are and what they're doing. So could you just give us an outline of of what you found when you were speaking to some of these protesters? Thanks, Brendan, and it's great to chat with you. Uh, It's great to be here. So let me start by saying that there was um, already a received narrative uh, in place even before the convoy and the protests arrived uh, in Ottawa. And this was a narrative that was coming from the Trudeau government, from the prime minister himself, who called them a fringe minority with unacceptable views. This was in turn amplified by, you know, a very large echo chamber in the mainstream media, um, that these were all a bunch of a small group of extremists uh, w- uh, waving swastikas and Confederate flags, uh, and generally, um, you know, just an unwholesome lot. Definitely not not people like us. Yeah. I I live in downtown Ottawa in the my, Byward Market, so I'm within blocks of where all of this was happening. Uh, about a five minute five-minute walk. I really went there as a resident of the city because I was so close to where all of this was happening. I wanted to go there. I'd read a bit about what these protests were going to be about. I read all of the mainstream media coverage of it. And so I had all of this stuff in my head, but I wanted to go there and make up my own mind. Uh, And I didn't want to buy any established official line here. As I discovered, and you know, some of these stories make it into this piece I wrote for Barry Weiss uh, on her Substack, and I was I also referenced that in my article for Spiked. Mm. Um, the reality of these protesters of the truckers uh, that I met 
starting from day one is very different from this received narrative that was already in place. Call it propaganda if you want, because I think that's what it it really amounted to. And these people were a cross section of Canadians. Uh, they were they're mostly working class. Um, they're not just a bunch of disgruntled old uh, white men, because that's what we were told. These are a bunch of just uh, mostly middle-class white people. Um, but I encountered people of color. I, I saw new immigrants. I saw children. I saw women. I saw the old. I saw the young. And I spent three weeks at the protests every day, uh, sometimes twice a day, sometimes late into the night, uh, speaking to everyone I possibly could. And I didn't encounter a single racist, a white supremacist, or even a misogynist. These were some of the warmest and friendliest people I've ever met in my life in Canada in the you know more than two decades that I've lived here. Um, so it was quite unusual that my perspective as a person of color who went into the protests was so different from what the mainstream coverage of it was. And, you know, that, that was, there, there seemed to be this total disconnect between what was being said about them and what I personally experienced. I want to talk about that disconnect and the disparity between what you observed when you were there and what I've heard from other people who went there too and spoke to individuals who they found to be perfectly normal, warm, interesting working people, the disparity between that reality and the political and media depiction of these protesters, because it is such an alarming disconnect, as you say, between those two things, between the truth and the fiction or the truth and the propaganda. And it really has spread through the global media. I mean, here in the UK, there has been uh, there have been numerous articles saying this is a fascist uprising. This is the return of the hard right. This is something that the left needs to stand up to. We've seen all that kind of stuff and in, in American publications as well. What do you think explains the intensity of the political and media demonization of these protesters? I mean, where where does that visceral determination to depict them as something they aren't, where does that come from? Do you think there's a, there's a recognition at some level of the challenge that these protesters pose to the status quo and therefore it cannot be tolerated? What do you think is motoring that kind of angry myth-making about the protesters? That's an excellent question. Um, so there's been a carefully crafted image of uh, the prime minister as someone who is inclusive and someone who cares about the average person and he works hard, uh, of, you know, and then he listens to their concerns and uh, and the media has largely gone with that and uh, and they support that narrative. I think, I think, Brendan, I think at the end of the day, it's fear. I think it's mm -hmm. fear of the fact that people are coming together. Uh, I'll give you one anecdote. On one of the evenings I was, I was there, it was late at night and, and a bunch of people were warming up by a fire. And, you know, they were having a drink and they were uh, chatting and it was, uh, you know, people from all across the country. You had uh, someone who was Franco-Ontarian, uh, someone from uh, Quebec, someone from Alberta, and I went up to them and I and I was I was chatting with them, and um, and the guy from Quebec said something very interesting, and I think that sort of captures what's going on here. Pointing to Parliament, he said. If those guys have managed to bring us together, an Albertan and a Quebecer together, they're either doing something really, really wrong or something really, really right. 
And then this other guy, this Anglo-Canadian said, uh, you know, for the first time in my life, I speak to a French person and they actually uh, will respond to me, try to respond to me in English. And they won't say, you know, we don't know any English. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of camaraderie and unity, which is what I saw. I've met uh, people who who met here at the protests. Uh, I met a couple, uh, one from Quebec and one from Alberta, and they met at the protests. They've fallen in love and they're now together. Um, so there was a lot of unity. There's a lot of uh, camaraderie. And I think that's what frightens people. I think it sort of uh, disturbs the status quo, uh, the narrative that is in place right now, because it's a huge challenge, I think, if, if uh, to that narrative of people coming together. And they're not, they're not coming together for a bad cause. Their demands are basically very reasonable. You know, when you look at what's happened in Canada, we've had some of the harshest restrictions in the world, not as bad as Australia, but it's it's pretty close. And uh, we still, we're still under restrictions. We're still not close to where most other countries are. The vaccine passport system makes no sense, especially with Omicron, which is so highly transmissible. Everybody gets it. I'm triple vaccinated and I got Omicron and I recovered. But, you know, I don't really know what the vaccine passport system is doing at this point. But these are people who have very real concerns and they feel that they've been forgotten for two years. They feel that they've been ostracized. They've lost jobs. Uh, they can't go into a restaurant and have a meal. They cannot go on a date. They cannot get on a plane to leave the country. Uh, they can't, cannot get on a plane to just go to a neighboring province if they wanted to visit their grandparents or their parents or their, or their spouse, you name it. So it's, it's very, it's, you know, these people have real stories. And I think that that is also part of the fear, I believe, because I don't think Canadians want to see themselves this way. I think there's a fair bit of denial that this is what has happened to this country in the last two years. And I, I, I think the elites don't really want to accept that reality. Yes, I think describing the response as being driven by fear, fear of such a public declaration of solidarity, of coming together, of asking questions about the society that Canada has become. I think that's very well described there. And I wanted to, following on from what you said about the reasonable demands that the protesters have, I wanted to ask you about their demands because on one level, um, you're absolutely right, of course, that uh, Canada has had very severe restrictions. That is, they have really impacted on people's lives. The truckers were initially very disturbed at the prospect of having to have proof of vaccination to carry out their job, essentially to cross the border. But you've also written uh, really importantly, I think, about the fact that it now goes slightly beyond that issue, even though that's a very important issue and has had very dramatic impact on people's living standards and sense of freedom and sense of hope. Uh, it's also gone, gone beyond that. And there's one line you, where you say in one of your pieces that people now have a real sense that they're being ganged up on by the government, the media, big tech and big pharma. So do you think something really important has happened here, which is that there's been a political awakening of sorts where people may have come together over a specific vaccine mandate, but there's been a broader awakening about the nature of governance in the 21st century and how problematic it is for lots of ordinary people? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's how I would describe it. There's been a real awakening and these are these are people who are I think also politically homeless. You can't really describe them as liberal, conservative, greens uh or whatever. They're just 
people who feel like they haven't been heard, they've been ostracized, they've been alienated from uh, society, their kids are no longer part of debate teams because uh, they're not vaccinated. They, they, these are people who oppose uh, masks for their children. And these are all issues that are ha- debatable. You know, the scientific consensus on many of these things is far from clear. We don't know quite know. There's a debate on this every single day. What animated all of them was primarily fatigue uh, and disconnect. Uh, with pandemic restrictions. And as I mentioned, what we had here in Canada was harsher than anywhere else in the world, barring Australia. They just wanted to return to their normal lives, you know, and to regain their freedom as citizens. Uh, Freedom was a word that you encountered that you could hear all the time when you walk through the protests. Um, There's been an awakening of what it means to, of one's rights, Perhaps some of these people took these for granted earlier, but now they're living lives where they cannot go into a restaurant if they're not vaccinated. And, and so there's a, there's been a real awakening of those things. Um, and so these, their demands, these specific demands that they had flowed directly from these frustrations that been carrying for two years. Uh, primarily they wanted all vaccine mandates to be lifted, both at the federal and the provincial levels, um, and as well as removal of any other pandemic era um, restrictions such as mass mandates, capacity limits, and then, and of course, no more lockdowns. There's another thing that I want to want to mention that there's this misconception out there that the protesters are anti-vax, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's another falsehood. I think some of them are mm-hmm. for sure. But many aren't. In fact, many of the truckers are actually vaccinated, but they were there in solidarity uh, with uh, colleagues who are not vaccinated and, and they just were there because they opposed the mandates. Um, some people I met uh, have taken vaccines. They've taken travel-related vaccines. They've taken uh, childhood vaccines. They're okay giving childhood vaccines to their kids, but they're uncomfortable with taking this particular vaccine. Some of them had a real visceral uh, hate for the mRNA vaccines. Mm. You know, they, they, they felt that some of these vaccines hadn't been, uh, or any of these vaccines, you know, which were authorized for emergency use, you know, did not face the years of stringent testing that you would normally see for a vaccine. Um, some found it politicized. For example, if you remember Kamala Harris in the lead up to the U.S. election said, I'm not going to believe in any vaccine developed under yeah. President Trump. Um, and, and then they mandated these very same vaccines after Trump left office. So a lot of people found the issues, the issue had become incredibly divisive and they were being forced to, to make an unwanted choice, you know, on those unwilling to take it. And the issue is really, really complex. For example, example, in Canada, like in the U.S., for some reason, these countries don't recognize recovery from infection. Um, And and several of the people that I met had actually gotten COVID and had recovered from it, and they felt that was good enough. Mm. And so the question I kept hearing throughout, which was a reasonable question, why, why is it something as old as time itself uh, immunity, uh, you know, that you get from infection. Why isn't that being recognized? Why are we doubling down on vaccines or nothing? Especially when you have, um, when you also have therapeutics that are now on the market. So th- these, these were some of the issues that I, that I encountered. I think the branding of them as, um, anti-vaxxers has been incredibly palpable in, in much of the media coverage. And 
it, I find it incredibly frustrating the way that anyone who raises questions about vaccine, vaccine mandates or lockdown policies is instantly tarred as an anti-vaxxer, just as a way of essentially demonizing and delegitimizing their arguments. I wanted to ask you about the broader political symbolism, or not even necessarily symbolism, but the broader political message of such an extraordinary clash as one between working class men, largely, who drive trucks and Justin Trudeau. I mean, you could not ask for two different types of people in society. And I think that's one of the reasons this protest has had such a global impact and has inspired copycat protests in other parts of the world and has inspired a huge amount of global coverage is because it is such a striking clash between arguably the most woke world leader who even his socks are virtue signaling and his ties and everything about him seems to be designed to say, I have all the correct opinions. I'm hyper woke. I'm a really good, decent, virtuous person. And then on the other side, you have these truckers who come from the other side of the tracks who have very different, a very different value system, a very different understanding of how society should work. So to what extent do you think this is similar in some ways to the Gilets jaunes in France and the vote for Brexit and various other things we've seen around the world where working class people have said, look, we have a different understanding of how our lives should go to you very well-educated, very woke people who tend to dominate political life. That's an excellent question. And um, and it is very clear that the protesters versus the government and the technocratic elite, there's a very strong class dimension here. Um, the elites, you know, were able to uh, escape the worst of the pandemic by working from home. And now it's gotten to the point that many actually prefer to uh, Zoom rather than going go into the office or the university campus, et cetera. But it's the working class, like Peter the trucker that I spoke to, you know, when I was, I, I, I actually spoke to him very close to where I live and he pointed to my building and he said, you know, I, I, I come to Ottawa many times and I've actually put the concrete stairs in that building. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the people, you know, these are part of the brick and mortar real economy rather than the digital economy. And these guys were really hurt by the lockdowns and other restrictions. So they were angry and frustrated. Also, you know, the class dimension explains some of the disdain, uh, some of the educated urban residents, like the civil servants. Ottawa is a civil servants town and also university town. Uh, so none of these people even have to step out if they, if they don't have to during the pandemic. I mean, you can just work from home throughout. And the disdain, the scorn that they uh, poured on these people, I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I originally come from India where class and caste are very much part of society there. And here behind the veneer of liberalism and equality and tolerance, one saw some of the most classist people in Canada. And, uh, you know, it was uh, common to deride them as these people. You know, it, it was just awful to experience that. And the prime minister didn't help either. You know, he took an unwavering a hardline position. And so Trudeau is essentially cemented and hardened the opposition to his vision of a rule by technocratic elites. Uh, bear in mind that the 
unelected technocratic elites played a huge role on outside had an outsized influence during the pandemic they were advising the government the various provincial governments on restrictions and on when to implement the next lockdown and what you know and and all kinds of things that amounted to micromanaging the average individual so i i think you know there's a huge class dimension to this and i think protesters may may have been driven out of town by the RCMP pepper sprayed but i i don't think these grievances have really disappeared uh i think if anything they've probably strengthened given the government's response sometimes it feels like the world is spiraling out of control but don't worry spike is here to help you make sense of it all and to push back against the regressive trends of our time But we need your help to do that. We rely on donations from readers and listeners like yourself to keep our content freely available for all. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 a month is a huge help. So start donating now by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. That's really well put. And I think the pandemic did so much to exacerbate or perhaps clarify class tensions in contemporary society. And the truckers' protest really captures that because these are people who worked throughout the pandemic who delivered the essentials who delivered the food who did who got things around the country that needed to be got around the country whereas the laptop classes the kind of civil servants the the sourdough elites you know the people who stayed at home and made sourdough bread and did an instagram yeah. story about it you know those are the people who were having these things delivered to them for them and mm-hmm. so that that kind of class tension it was very clear through the pandemic and it's now blown up i think over the ottawa protest and it's become much more visceral and and a bit more explicit and in relation to that i wanted to ask you what you think this also tells us about the left in contemporary society and how the left has changed because there would have been a time when the left would have seen the coming together of workers mm-hmm. in a powerful way in order to demand greater rights and and the right to work essentially they would have seen that as a positive thing something worth supporting something worth celebrating what we had in this protest i thought one of the most striking sights i saw was when a, a group of woke leftists i guess you would call them turned up to organize a counter protest and they were chanting trans rights are human rights which i just thought was the just the most wonderful snapshot of the contemporary left that you could ask for so what do you think this tells us about the changing nature of the left from something some a group that was interested in the working class to something that is yeah. now much more removed from those people well that's such an important question and something that i've been grappling with actually so what is ironic about all of this is that um that the unions here um have come out in support of the government yeah. <laughs> have come out in support of the mandates uh it's extraordinary because you know i was reading something a couple of weeks ago jeremy corbin and uh, the unions in the uk um oppose the mandates but what's happening here is the opposite mm-hmm. and the ndp uh one of the three main parties which is which is our left of center party like labor in the uk but as they've never been in power endorsed the emergency even before it was it was 
debated uh, even before it was declared. Uh, and they voted with the government uh, yesterday and it survived parliamentary scrutiny. And and so the NDP, led by an equally, if not more, woke leader, Jagmeet Singh, who's best known for making cool TikTok dance videos, which was pretty much the extent of their campaign last fall when, when, when we went into elections. This was supposed to be the working class party. This this was a party that represented the working class. You know, he, he says tax the rich, but the, the rhetoric doesn't meet the actions of the NDP or the left for that matter. Um, so I'm not quite sure what is happening with the left. A lot of my friends who are left of center, they're the elites now, yeah. you know, they, they're so disconnected from what actually is going on. I mean, I, I can't make, seem to make sense of it. There's a cognitive dissonance. I think they, you know, express compassion for the homeless and for those in need, but they can't bring themselves to listen to the person who lost his job because uh, he doesn't want to get vaccinated or the, or the hockey mom who, who can't go to the rink to take her son for hockey practice because she's unvaccinated and she has to get a friend to drive her son to the rink. So I just don't understand, you know, what has happened to the left here, but I certainly noted, you know, their positions on these very important, vital things. When they're supposed to be standing up for the working class, they're standing up with the government. Absolutely. And in different ways, we've seen a similar dynamic in Europe, and I'm sure in the United States as well, where in Europe in particular, left-wing parties have increasingly become the domain of upper-middle-class graduates, people from a particular section of society, whereas significant numbers of working-class people are moving towards conservative parties or right-wing parties or populist parties. So there's been, there is an extraordinary political realignment taking place in society. And I think one of the one of the many good things about the Ottawa protests is it really brought some of that stuff to the surface and, and revealed what's taking place. It would be remiss of me not to ask you about what I think is the most disturbing element of all of this, which has been the clampdown on the protest. And I watch this stuff, uh, particularly the police clampdown or the threats of taking children to a place of safety. If you bring your child to the protest, we'll take the child to a place of safety, which is a chilling threat as far as I can see. There's also been the role of big tech and the banks mm -hmm. who have frozen, threatened to freeze people's accounts or refuse to give people, uh, the protesters donations that people made. I mean, this is an extraordinary authoritarian moment in Canadian history, isn't it? Could you just give us a sense of how extraordinary it has been? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable to me, uh, especially when I when I watch so-called liberals and progressives who've been nodding, even cheering and egging on uh, Trudeau's emergency uh, measures. Uh, the justifications for it are astounding. And as I mentioned, the NDP, our, our left of center party like Labour in the UK, you know, endorsed this emergency even before it was declared. Um, the, the extent of the government's use of uh, emergency powers, including freezing bank accounts of ordinary people who, you know, who gave a few dollars here and there, this was a perfectly legal protest is is out of all proportion to the threat that the protesters posed i mean they've been characterized as insurrectionists yeah. terrorists an ottawa city councillor uh, called them mercenaries 
but at the end of the day, this basically amounted to parking and noise infractions, which could have been dealt with normal policing, as we saw uh, in Alberta, where they, you know, swiftly cleared the uh, border blockades uh, last weekend. And, and they did that with just the local police. So the, to realize the gravity of what is happening in Canada right now in its entire history as an independent country since 1867, it's only used emergency powers four times. The two world wars, uh, the October crisis in 1970 when Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father, controversially used wartime uh, powers to crack down on a small group of separatists in Quebec who had taken I believe, two hostages. Yeah, and so now you have this. And this is a law that is meant to be used very rarely uh, in times of war, in times of crisis, in times of uh, if there's a terrorist attack. But to use it on peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience, and that is what it is. Uh, This is what it was. It was civil disobedience, but it was characterized as an occupation, which was another problematic term used by um, many in the mainstream media. Uh, These are Canadians, fellow Canadians who've come to the capital to protest something that they feel is unjust. They're not occupiers. They're not outside outsiders invading your capital. Uh, The city belongs to everybody. You know, so the emergency is nothing less than the assertion, I think, of the technocratic elites uh, that they're the real rulers, despite a system in which it's nominally one person, one vote, which you you would think would empower the working class and the middle classes. What is ironic here is that uh, Mr. Trudeau heads a minority government. Hmm you know, which lost national popular vote. So two thirds of voters actually voted against his liberal party, but he stays in power because uh, because he, he has the support of the NDP, uh, which is supposed to be standing up for the working class, but, it, but it's not really done that at all uh, in recent years. And what happens next, you know, is anybody's guess. I, you know, Canada is on a path which is not a good path to be on. Um, you know, I'm originally from India, as I mentioned earlier, a country which saw an emergency declared by uh, then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi in 1975, and that lasted a year and a half. Now, this emergency that Mr. Trudeau has declared was supposed to be just time limited, specific to certain areas. You know, but we might be under this for a while. Um, and that's pretty scary. And in the Indian context, if I can go back to that, um, that basically saw the decay in the quality of in Indian institutions. That's where it all began, the corruption the, of the bureaucracy, the courts, censorship of the media. And then there's this cult of personality around a leader. And that is basically India today. And in India never recovered from it from 1975. So, you know, I, I really think it's it's going to be really hard for Canada to return to normal after this because they've, they've normalized this now. The media is now normalizing an extraordinary use of emergency powers uh, over peaceful civil, civil disobedience. There are a lot of questions that come to mind. What is the future of civil disobedience in this country? I've been asking this question uh, for the last few days. The emergency powers actually protect the charter rights and freedoms. So you can peacefully assemble if you want to today, but you can't do that in the nation's capital. And that is quite extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And I think your description of the emergency as almost a political tool being used by Trudeau to not simply to practically crush 
a protest that he finds very threatening, but also to restate his moral or technocratic authority over society. It seems so clear that the reason he's using this emergency is as a substitute for his political authority, a stand-in for his political authority, which makes it even more cynical and even more dangerous, in my view. Um, Okay, my final question for you, Rupa, you've kind of just touched on it just there, which is the question of what happens next. Now, none of us has a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen next. But you did say earlier on that, you know, the protest might be crushed and all these terrible things were done to the protesters. But the underlying grievances that they have and the underlying tensions between that section of society and the ruling section of society is not going to just disappear. And in fact, one could argue that this emergency could intensify that conflict. So what's your sense of um, how the truckers feel, how their supporters feel? Is there a sense of defeat or is there a sense that we will come back in a different form? What form do you think this pushback against the, uh, the patrician technocratic form of governance, what form do you think that might take in the future in Canada? I think the resolve of the truckers and the protesters, I think it's, if anything, it's, it's strengthened their resolve. I think they're defiant. Um, they're, they're not going to give up. When I uh, went uh, to the first day of the protest, you know, and I went there not quite knowing what to expect, I came home and I, and I told my partner, I think the political elites in this country have completely misjudged this moment. Um, and this is going to have a, you know, seismic shift on the political landscape uh, in, in Canada. And I was laughed at by several of my f- so-called friends in the mainstream media. <laughs> and they said, ah, oh, this is just going to last for two days and then they'll leave. And it's just about 10 trucks and uh, nothing's going to come out of it. It's just a bunch of fringe elements. Uh, but they were here for three weeks and, they, and they're defiant, even after the police pushed against them and, uh, you know, basically, you know, drove them out of the city. They found places outside this uh, downtown core to protest. Someone was uh, a group of people gathered yesterday on a main road in Ottawa outside the downtown core protesting. You know, there because nothing really has changed. The issues are now not necessarily even about vaccine mandates. Mm-hmm. That's what's going on now. You know, what's going on now is that was the issue about a week ago. The issue is now bigger. It's about, it really is about individual liberty right now. It is really about government overreach. It, it's, it is about all of these things the truckers and the protesters were pointing to. Rupa, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.